You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hey, get in. I'm taking you home with me. Well, what are you waiting for? You want a piggyback ride? the wrong idea about me, Carly. We just met. I don't have any ideas yet. We could do it, Faye. I could take care of you real good. And suddenly I saw you two on the dance floor and it hit me like one of the kids' left hooks here. That's what they used to call him. Kid Collins. You don't really know anything about me. No, but I know people. I know what they'll do and I know what they won't do. I don't want him talking you into this mess. They're using you for their own criminal purposes. I'd say it'd be good if you never had to worry about money the rest of your life. Maybe I can get some kind of job. <laughs> don't hurt me, mister. I don't know another guy in this country pulls a stunt like that and gets away with it. Oh. How about it? And it's a damn good thing we were there. You would have taken the wrong boy. I told you, Faye, right from the beginning that I wasn't stupid. Family's ready to pay up. They just want their boy back. Wake up, Polly! doesn't trust me, and I don't trust her. We both don't trust you, but I can fix that part. You. We can end all this right now. You and me, together forever. I could take care of you real good. You really believe there could be a you and me? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. You know, they don't call it the sweet science for nothing. Also with us this week is Professor Robert Polito. It's a pleasure to be here. This week we're looking at the 1990 film After Dark My Sweet. Based on a novel by hard-boiled scribe Jim Thompson, the film tells the tale of Kevin Kid Collins, a drifter and former boxer who falls in with a bad crowd. Faye Anderson, played by Rachel Ward, and Uncle Bert Stoker, played by Bruce Dern. Faye and Uncle Bert have plans to kidnap a titan of industry's child. What follows is a series of double crosses that puts Kid Collie to the test. Robert, as our guest, when was the first time you saw After Dark My Sweet, and what did you think? I saw it in a in a screening room in New York, maybe a month or so before it was released, um, six weeks before it was released. Um, I got to write some of the press kit um, when the when the film came out, and um, I think back then um, I liked it, but I also underestimated it. When I saw it at the time, I was focusing maybe a little bit too much on the differences between the novel and the film. And the film itself back then, I, I found a little bit, a little bit too clean and a little bit too, maybe the right word, but it's an uh, imprecise word, would be a little bit too arty in a way for its own good. And what I mean by it being a little bit too clean, um, you know, you might see in the, you know, the Rachel Ward character of Faye. I mean, I back then I thought, oh, you know, this is somebody who's kind of drunk around the clock. You know, how does she manage to you know, to look like she just wandered back from the, you know, from the gym. I, I focused a little bit too much, I think, on things like that. And in the subsequent 
viewings of you know I've come to see it um, in a much more admirable light. I I'm struck by the complex sweetness of the tone and the and the kind of relentless devastating logic as that as that tone moves towards that um, you know extraordinary ending. How did you get to write the press notes for it? I had already been doing some, you know, some writing about um, Thompson, and I was just called up and asked if I would, you know, do some of, you know, some of the, you know, the kind of routine press work. How about you, Rob? When is your first time seeing this? This is one of those that um, I had not seen it until we watched it for the show, and. For me, it was an interesting watch because James Foley's work, especially next week's film that we'll talk about later, what we're doing, uh, was uh, one that always resonated with me. And it was interesting to see something beyond that film, which I think a lot of people would know. And it's interesting to see a noir film in the early 90s, 1990, before, I guess, the big sweep of neo-noirs that came with the uh, the Tarantino wave for good or ill. And it was also good to see sort of this uh, amalgam, I would say, of at times feels like that it's trying to do like 1940s kind of dialogue and, and ideas, but is definitely has a contemporary feel at the same time. So, so it, it it has these kind of interesting tonal mixes in there too, where I could totally see them taking this script and shooting it in like 1948, and uh, I think it would work. Although of course they would probably edit out some of the swear words, but uh, overall I really liked it. Yeah, because I think back back then I think um, a, a kidnapping plot seemed seemed very dated. I know exactly what you mean by the by the 1940s, but there's been so many revivals of plots like that that I think well, that, that anachronism has been lost. It wasn't even just that. There was also a feeling of like some of the dialogue and how the dialogue mm-hmm. was delivered that it felt like they were using anachronistic language or anachronistic rhythm at times of the way the, the language was brought across by the actors. And not too many people would talk about people having a point at the top of their head it seems like more of a a throwback kind of insult and that's one of the first things that Faye says to uh Kali is I guess I just don't really get the point why don't you reach up to the top of your head maybe you'll feel it there are some lines in there where it definitely is hearkening back to like 40s 50s kind of hard-boiled dialogue but it's kind of neat to me I, I like it feels kind of anachronistic and it just feels like more timeless rather than out of time i mean and it's one of those you know pick up a drifter there's this really hot woman there's some crime i mean you have all of these great elements that are for me really kind of timeless whether they were you know in the 1940s and 50s or whether they're 80s 90s now i mean some of the stuff that's in the film would not feel out of place if it were remade again next year. I don't think that there would be a problem with that other than maybe they would change some of the dialogue or maybe not. I mean, we've seen stuff like Ryan Johnson kind of use some of the more hard boiled banter with something like brick where again, once you get into it, I think it might've thrown some people off, especially with just the kind of rhythms and the way that, that, that kind of, uh, you know, vernacular is used in that film 
it's not laid on nearly as thick in After Dark My Sweet, but there is that kind of hint of that to it. And I can definitely see where you're coming from with that one, Rob. Well, you know, we got on the sidetrack here, Mike, but what about for yourself? When did you see this film? And what did you think? I think I saw this one probably late 90s, maybe early 2000s. For some reason, I had just totally missed it. And actually, I think it was kind of the box cover threw me off a little bit. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later in the show. Once I finally checked this thing out, and I think I was kind of going through like a little bit of a Jason Patrick phase or something. And I just was blown away by his performance and really kind of got into the movie back then. And it's one of those that just doesn't necessarily get talked about that often, but has always kind of held a little bit of a a sweet spot for me, especially when it comes to the performances. And I love Bruce Dern and seeing him in this, and he's just got that kind of like used car salesman kind of thing about him in this. And he is constantly doing that. Know what I mean? That's what they used to call him. Kid Collins. When was that last fight of yours, kid? The big one. It was uh, some time ago. It was uh, it wasn't even a big fight. So sure, kid. Sure. But every fight's a big one. Being in the ring, facing someone who wants to kill you. You know what I mean? What am I telling you for? Yeah, I understand, sir. So cut out the sir stuff. And I really like when he does that in things like um, the laughing, what is it, the laughing policeman and some other films. He seems to always kind of have that little, you know, know what I mean kind of thing. Like, especially in laughing policeman, they'll say some of the most heinous things in the world and then just kind of take it back a little bit in quotes by saying that. And he kind of does that a little bit in here and just him kind of trying to play kid versus Faye and you know himself somewhere in the middle and everything and then being threatened by this guy Bert it just uh, all the elements really kind of added up and I just like that it's a kidnapping film but it's not a typical kidnapping film insofar as I think uh, Ransom came out a few years after this and which was kind of a remake of an older film as well and that was very heavily inspired by things like, you know, high and low and some of the Ed McBain stuff that always is focused more on the parents and you don't get a whole lot of the kidnappers except to say that they are evil people. And this focuses solely on the kidnappers and we never get the parents, which I really kind of appreciate that you kind of take it from a completely different angle. To stick with Bruce Stern for a bit, I also love all the stuff he does with his body. It's like he's this, you know, giant worm, you know, as, as they're moving him around from room to room. And he does all these uh, extraordinary things with his with his upper body. I, I agree with everything you said about the, about the way that he talks and the, and the dialogue as well. I really love, uh, speaking of body motion, Jason Patrick, because he's playing an ex-boxer, somebody who killed someone in the ring, and after he killed someone in the ring, he ended up going into this mental hospital, or series of mental hospitals, it sounds like, and the way he walks, he kind of has this like little stutter step that he has, and it's kind of nice, because we don't see that right off. We start off in a bar, and he's there kind of telling the story about his friend, Jack Billingsley, who you know there was a mix-up and all this kind of stuff and we don't see 
what his whole thing, the way that he holds his body until shortly after that, after he punches out the bartender. And then just to see the way that he walks and he's keeping his hands kind of up on his body and he's kind of bouncing along as he walks and everything. It looks like he is still in the ring and he always kind of keeps one hand up. Like he's ready to lash out at any moment. And he's kind of, sometimes he has like a, dazed look in his eyes and it's just as like you can see that he you know he he holds himself like he's punch drunk the whole time and i really appreciate that about his physical performance and then every once in a while his dialogue runs completely counter to what his body is telling us which is just a really clever way of telling us that there's a little bit more to this character than what we see on the surface and he has this incredible stoop a lot of the time. Like, like not only is he in a kind of offensive posture, like he's about to strike somebody, but but, but he's he's clearly somebody that's just been beaten down, um, and carries himself as if he's like three or four inches shorter than he really is. And that hair is always a mess <laughs> in this film. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was one of the things that I put in my notes as I go. Moves like a boxer and kind of a disheveled homeless person. And I would even say in terms of his speech patterns and manner, it's like I've been at, you know, bus stops or whatever, and someone just starts talking to you. And you're like, why are you talking to me? Like, and it's not just general discussion. Like, hey, how's the weather? Uh, Did you see the game last night or something? I mean, he's getting into these involved conversations, especially in the beginning where he's in the bar and he's trying to have this, he's trying to talk to somebody, he's trying to connect to somebody, but you're kind of like, same time, it's kind of a turnoff. Like, it doesn't seem to flow organically. It's more like he's trying to push it in some way. And I can't, like, I, I was trying to figure out if maybe his manner of talking and, and trying to have conversation with people is some sort of, like, um, nervous tick or something. Because I know uh, I have some friends who, when they get nervous, they start talking and they get more and more rapid in their speech. Instead of me, I usually just get quiet and sort of sit there. Well, a know. lot of his talk at the beginning is that he's, he's always trying to pretend that he knows something that he, that he really doesn't know. So when he's talking about the bar coasters, you know, he tries to give what he thinks is the right information about how volume makes them pay for themselves or, or his, his compliments to the bartender. You, you really know how to keep your beer cold, you know, as if, you know, as if that's, uh, you know, an extraordinary feat. You know, the whole Jack Billingsley story or, you know, is, is, some, is, is a little bit of Thompson's childhood, actually, that he kind of stitched into the, into the book. Um, he was friends, um, or his father really was friends and a business partner with the Billingsley family later, you know, Logan Billingsley, who started the Stork Club in New York. And I think Thompson's childhood friend, who I think was actually named Glenn Billingsley, but I think that's a little, you know, kind of inside, you know, private joke that Thompson, you know, put into the, into the book that fully kept for the film. I was driving south with this friend of mine, uh, Jack Billingsley, you know, big real estate family. And, uh, anyways, a car broke down, so I go to get a tow truck and, uh, I, you know, I fix a lot of things, but, uh, cars... Darn full crazy Jack wasn't gone when I got back. Now imagine what happened was he... Jack got the car started himself. That's what happened. Now you're in here looking for him. While he's out there looking for you. Yeah. Darn old crazy Jack. Ought to known I'd come to a place like this looking for him, though. Probably had an accident. 
that whole Jack Billingsley thing, which comes up a couple times during the film, feels very much like a performance, you know, and it, and really that's what it is. I mean, especially he, he does that in this bar scene and he notably does it again later on when he's almost in trouble. There's this cop that's questioning him and that's when Billingsley comes up again. And it, yeah, I, I, to your point, Rob, it does very much feel like almost like a performance art kind of thing. Like I'm going to tell this story about Jack Billingsley and how we got separated and the car broke down and all this kind of stuff and see who connects with it in this environment that he's in this unfamiliar place. And yeah, it completely backfires with them because then Faye and the bartender Bert start basically, um, riffing off of his story and making fun of him, which I think is uh, pretty great, especially bringing in the whole Jack and Jill thing. But it's a kind of sad, uncomfortable, alienated person doing an imitation of a normal person, I think. You know, like he, he thinks that's the way um, people who are smooth and on top of things talk. Oh, my friend, crazy Jack Billingsley, you can't believe what he did today. And you're absolutely right. It just backfires because what comes across is, is the performative aspect is the fact that he you know that he's not in control of the the story that he's trying to tell it's shortly after that that we have the first kind of well we've seen a little bit of violence we've gotten some um some flashbacks to kid collins in the ring but we get the first outward appearance of violence when he punches Bert uh, after Bert's been making fun of him and wants him to leave the bar for what Kid Collins thinks is no good reason. And that's when we get this first kind of introduction of this like flash that happens during some of these scene transitions, this kind of jump to white as we go along kind of stutters in there. And then you have almost like an electrical sound effect that goes with it. At least that's what I was hearing when this would happen. And to me, it always kind of reminds me, or I think of, like, synapses firing or misfiring in the case of Kid Collins. So I don't know what you guys think about that, but I think that that's a nice little way that we transition some of these scenes in the film. Well, it could also be viewed, as we later learn, uh, his institutionalization. And during that period, I mean, electroshock was probably not out of the question. You know, so maybe it's supposed to kind of connect to that idea as well. I also think there's a kind of, and I think this is one of the things I like most about the movie, there's a kind of fever dream quality to a lot of the movie that, you know, that comes out of the heat of the, of the desert, but I think it also comes out of the violence and the violence that's in the present as well as the violence that's in, in the, you know, the, the ring flashbacks. And, um, and you just kind of sense almost like that when the kid is in those in those moments that he's that he's nowhere near in in, in control of, um, of of what he's doing and what's happening around him. And, and I got that a lot during this film, this kind of sense of irreality as it was going along. Like from there, we kind of go into I would say standard kind of noirish territory where we have Faye taking Kid Collins back to her place. And then there's kind of, you know, this playful banter. I was reminded a little bit of like double indemnity kind of here with some, why am I forgetting 
Barbara Stanwyck's character's name, but like her and Walter Neff kind of, you know, tossing back barbs and everything. And clearly Faye is on top when it comes to this relationship. And after a little bit, she basically kind of warns him off and he goes and runs into this doctor at another place where I think, again, there's this Jack Bellingsley character comes up again. And the doctor, second appearance on the projection booth by the guy who was the police detective in blue velvet so it was nice to see him show up but that character kind of bringing it back to what you were saying robert there were so many times where i kept wondering if that character was real because he just seems to kind of be this manifestation a couple times where it's like the kid needs somebody and he just kind of shows up and so there was this kind of weird Thing, whenever he would appear, I kept thinking, is he really there, or is this just something that the kid is imagining? I'm not really getting this. And then the way that the doctor kind of carried himself, at first I thought he was making some romantic overtures towards the kid and everything. I thought that might end badly. Carly, how would you feel about staying on here with me? You'd be a big help to me. And I think I'd be of some help to you. And, well, it would be a fine arrangement for both of us. Well, Doc... You see, my friend, your judgment just isn't good. A man in your condition is easily influenced and, broadly speaking, dependent on the goodwill of others. Well, you can see the potential for tragedy. But it isn't until much later in the film where the doctor kind of is introduced. I mean, he's introduced kind of to Faye via a phone call, but we never see the phone call or, or hear the call. So it's it's kind of he's very disconnected from the narrative. And in the novel, there's actually a scene that's not in the movie at the near the end where um, um, he hears the doctor on the radio talking to him. So I think that that actually lends credence to what you what you just said. I mean, I think there's there's clearly kind of some implication that that he may or may not be a projection or a hallucination of something deep in, you know, in, inside the kid's skull. And you, you remember those moments at the end of The Killer Inside Me too where there's, you know, where, you know, Lou Ford, you know, um, ends up in an institution and, and starts hearing, um, you know, voices. And, and I think this is a kind of, you know, lower key, tender, um, version, I think of the, of the same thing, but it's, it, it's sort of astonishing, I think, in the, you know, the, the eeriness, which, which the doctor just kind of seems to pop up out of nowhere and do some things that seem to be in, in, in character and some things that are utterly, you know, in character, like, the, you know, like the, like one of the out of character, out of character moments is when, you know, he, he's, um, he's on the road and, and he, he he backs up his car, and it's almost like he back he almost backs the car into, you know, into Kid Collins um, there. Yeah, when he shows up, when uh, the kid and Faye are arguing like crazy towards the end too, it just is like wow, this is a really convenient time for somebody to show up. It's almost like he's rescuing Kid from this situation. Yeah, and you know, and you know, he and even if you know, even if he's not, you know, a kind of. Um, projection or or hallucination i mean the 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 strangeness of the of the role that he's playing i mean ostensibly he's a he's a kind of 
authority figure, but but there's clear that there's also some kind of personal and and likely erotic attachment between between them, and he doesn't do any of the things that um, you know an authority figure is is supposed to do, like you know call the police. You know he's he's aware that um, you know that his his office has been broken into and insulin has been stolen and uh and he knows exactly where it's ended up we should probably talk about the family politics when it comes to this because the family is all over i i kind of already mentioned that this is an interesting kidnap story in that we only get the kidnapper's point of view but we don't get the family on the other end of it but we have such a family dynamic going on in this, I mean, naming our main character Kid Collins, and you know, it's a kidnapping plot, and Uncle Bert and Faye kind of being this kind of erotic mother figure, which is kind of an odd thing because at one point she's treating Collie well, like Collie, she calls him Collie, calls yeah, him a dog, you know, basically. Yeah, he's basically a dog to her, yeah. But also kind of like a child, too. She kind of mothers him at times when she's not you know, halfway crawled inside of a bottle. And it's funny to me, you know, and I know we'll talk about this a lot more when it comes to uh, Thompson, but just the way that he portrays the drinking in the book is just kind of uh, bizarre to me. I was going to just really quick here, talk about the way he, um, Kid Collins describes the drinking. He's talking about how he's seen alcoholic patients at some of the institutions that he's been in. And he said that those institutions have a lot of alcoholic inmates. No one can be nicer or smarter than they are when they're leveled off. And no one can be as downright ornery and crazy when they're in a bad way. And yeah, we'll talk about how Thompson was in a bad way quite often. So having Faye as this alcoholic character was kind of an interesting, interesting turn as well. It's a fascinating dynamic because it's sort of like, you know, Uncle Bud, but but to a certain extent, he's one of the father figures. You know, um, Faye is is obviously a kind of mother figure to both Kid Collins and the and the kidnapped boy. And I think you're you're right to draw attention to the fact that we never see the parents of the of the of the kidnapped boy because it's. I think the clear implication is that, you know, this kind of, I think I describe it in my Thompson book as a kind of post-nuclear family, you know, that it's, uh, you know, like, it's almost as if this is his real family, that they're actually taking better care of him than, you know, his wealthy parents who have the chauffeur pick him up every day, and, and the neglectful teacher who doesn't even recognize that you know, that this kidnapping is taking place. When, of course, the kid gets sick, he's got diabetes, and Faye doesn't, nobody knows that going into it. Maybe Uncle Bert knows this, but Faye claims she doesn't know. She gives him all this food. And that's an interesting thing, too, is this whole idea of do they want the kid to stay alive or not? And then by that implication, do they want Kid Collins to stay alive or not? But with this kid, she feeds him all this stuff, and he ends up just, in the book, it's coming out of both ends. In the movie, it's just coming out of the one end, thank goodness. And 
he just keeps asking Kid Collins, you know, are you sure you're not mad at me? I'm so sorry. I'll clean this up. And, and Collins, like a normal human being, is like, don't worry about it. I'll clean it up. It's, no, I'm not mad at you. And, you know, the kid really expresses, you know, he, he gives him a big hug and he's like, I like you, you know, thank you kind of thing. And which comes back later in an echo, which is great, right towards the end of the film. But it's... Uh, but the clear implication there, though, is that he's... he he's made to feel bad about that at home all the time. Exactly. He's made to apologize for that kind of behavior all the time for getting sick. And I don't know what kind of industry his folks are involved in. I mean, it doesn't really matter what it is, but it's just this whole idea of this kid comes from money and there's, nothing really more important than that. But then there's the other kid other than kid Collins. There's the, the child that Collins picks up outside of the school, which is just a a terrific scene, both in the book and in the movie, this uh, kid who, how would you best describe this kid who gets into the back of his limousine? Well, he's like, what? He's like, like 11 going on 35, you know, I mean, he's, you know, he's, you kind of know that he's going to grow up and become uncle, uncle, Bud. you know, um, he's already a kind of con man. He's, he's wise beyond his years. I mean, he, he knows exactly what's wrong with, with Charlie and he, and he even negotiates to be kind of dropped off in front of school rather than brought back into the, into the, into the, you know, the, 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 the playground at, itself about this little right of ours i'd appreciate it if you didn't say anything about it i won't and don't you say anything either just give me a minute to sneak back inside and you can go pick up charlie and no one will be the wiser but i think that's a, that's also i think the the, the the whole kidnapping is 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 i think part of the hallucinatory quality of both the book and the film that collins ends up with the wrong boy everything is off about him and no one notices, you know, as he's as he's kind of wandering, you know, through the through the playground, and he falls down, and the and his glasses fall off, and there's something, you know, surreal and nightmarish about all of that at the same time. I can't remember if this is in the movie or if it's just in the book. The fate of that kid that gets into the back of Collins's limo. In the book, it's amazing. It's another one of those weird dreamlike turns because he kind of eventually figures out that the only one that can kind of put the finger on him is this little kid, is the the wrong child that he picked up. And it's almost immediately after that that he's listening to a radio, again with the radio, and the radio reports that the plane that the kid was on crashed. Crashed, so- yeah. yeah. <laughs> So it's like just amazing, you know, coincidence. I really don't think so. It really feels like the world outside of Kid Collins is being controlled somewhat by his delusions in that way. So it's it's, it's kind of uh, a, a neat little turn in that point. It's everywhere in the book, and I think um, fully retained just enough of them for the you know for the movie to. Um, to, to to make you kind of doubt really everything that you're you're seeing. I mean, so that like you know to go back to the scene with the the doctor and the doctor ostensibly or supposedly calling Faye, um, and she runs out of the house and and you know leaves you know and leaves so quickly that she you know that she leaves the door open to the to the street and then and then comes back and and never quite fully explains except very casually like why she disappeared and 
you know, since the movie and the book are both told to a certain extent from the kid's point of view, is is he just misreading her at that moment? And, and he's just giving off these signals that, in fact, he, he is extremely menacing and, and strange, or was there an actual phone call that, you know, that prompted the same thing? I find it interesting in the the book, one of the things that is going on and that they don't necessarily explore in the movie that much in the book. It's he has this thing where he's uh, mowing grass and he really wants to kind of help Faye out around the house. And he has this big scythe and he's out there mowing down this grass. So obviously scythe, we've got the death imagery and all that kind of stuff, but in the movie, what I like is this field of, what is it, date palms, these desiccated date palms that are lining out. And just the setting of the movie itself is just gorgeous. This big old country house in this long, expansive field with these dead date palms going along up until his kind of guest house that's that's out a ways. And... I was thinking maybe he would try to take care of those palms a little bit in the in the movie, but that isn't necessarily there. But I think that that no, distance he does. Remember, is there's, really a, right. there's a scene where he he's on a ladder cutting down the. Dead. Oh, that's right. Thank you. Okay, so it kind of it's nice translation from the 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 mowing to the the palms in there, and then of course you know we've got some of the Christian imagery with the palm tree, you know, the palm fronds and all that too, which is kind of nice as well. That all comes back at at the ending, where you know he sacrifices himself so that Faye and the you know and the child can can live. And I think in the in the novel that's that's explicitly rendered in you know in Christian terms. And, and it, it, it's another one of those novels where these these dubious, almost um, psychotic, and in some of the other novels, you know, definitely psychotic narrators conclude that they're really Jesus Christ. Let's talk for a minute about Rachel Ward. Rachel Ward, who, it's funny, I just did kind of a really quick pop quiz with my wife a couple days ago, and I'm like, if I say Rachel Ward, what comes to mind? And she drew an absolute blank. She had nothing, like not even the thorn birds. I was really hoping that I would at least get the thorn birds out of her. She was hot stuff at the time. I mean, Thornbirds was 83, and even though it was, what, a TV miniseries, that was like burning up the airwaves in 83. But that was seven years earlier, though. True, but still, it's she's still really smoking hot in oh, After yeah, Dark yeah. Last Week. Well, and, and, and as I mentioned earlier, like when I saw it in 1990, I, I thought that was actually kind of one of the problems with, with the movie is you couldn't quite see the, the ravages of the, of the alcohol that, that she was consuming right in front of you. Um, but what I, what I came to admire after that is that like, she, she, she's so convincingly somebody who's, who's pulled in a dozen different directions simultaneously. Sometimes she wants to do the right thing. Sometimes she wants to, you know, the, 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 the boy to die in a, in a, in the field by the, by the river. Um, she's terrorized by uncle Bud and she's attracted to the kid, but wants to let him go knows that, you know, um, the right thing is to, is to send him, is to send him away. She's very convincing as a 
as a thoroughly confused person on screen. And I think that's a hard thing to do. I can see your point, though, that she does look a little too well put together. But then at the same time, I'm almost thinking that if this is Kid Collie's fantasy, that maybe that's the way that he wants to see her. Yeah, but we don't get any sort of suggestion kind of in the other direction in some, you know, in some ways. I mean, like, like when the, when the doctor pops up on screen, I mean, you are, you are suddenly like, like for a few minutes in blue velvet and then it goes back, but there's, but there's no cues like surrounding her that, that at least no cues that registered on me that, that she's more ravaged or, or different than, um, then the kid perceives her. And, and I think that the lovemaking scenes all, you know, when I first saw the movie, um, in 1990 were among the things that kind of bothered me as a, as a little bit too arty. But when you, when you reread the book, um, they're not presented in a kind of arty way, but, um, I'm pretty certain it's almost only, it's almost the only genuinely poignant sexual scene in a, in a Thompson novel. There are even lines like, you know, but again, it's told from the kid's point of view that there's lines like we dropped all pretense. There was no pretense to us on that, on that day. The film, I think, chooses to, you know, to render it in a kind of different, different register, but it, it still emphasizes the, the uniqueness of that momentary and clearly transitory connection. I think she does a really good job in here, and you're right about her being in all these different directions, and I really get that feeling. And also, the whole thing in the beginning, like when we're given her name, you know, we, we meet her in the bar, but she then picks him up in the car, which to me felt like a dream sequence in a way, like you were saying this whole what's real and what's not, because after he gets tossed out of the bar and then she pulls up and picks him up, I'm like, why would she pick him up? Like she just spent minutes, you know, several minutes kind of laughing at this guy. Why would she want to spend any more time with him? And then uh, when they get to the house, she introduces herself as Mrs., and I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, because I, I think there's just enough realism to the car pickup scene because you know she's seen him punch somebody and she's presumably already, you know, far along with this, you know, crack kidnapping, you know, kidnapping plot with, you know, Uncle Bud, and and so she picks him up to advance that, but 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 everything about the the way that it's shot and and the way that he's he's racing along and she's keeping the car at exactly the same pace with the door open and you know till finally he gets he gets in i think it's a it, it's a it, it's it, it's characteristic i think of how beautifully this film is is shot and staged from scene to scene one thing rob i want to ask you when it comes to the kid Collins character, like both Robert and I have read the book now. And so we kind of know a little bit more behind the scenes when it comes to the kids motivations kind of thing. But for you, were you ever angry at any point that he kind of, to me, it feels like he knows that he's walked right into a bad situation. Did you ever want him to just walk right out? Were you ever angry with him for being in the situation and keeping on with it? No, not at all. Because I saw it as it was a combination of things. One is I felt his judgment was impaired and that keeps coming up with the doctor. Your judgment's impaired. Your judgment's impaired. Uh, secondarily, he doesn't really seem to have anywhere else to go. 
So even if he gets himself in a bad situation, it's better to live in someone's house than it is to live on the street. I guess that was my other thought. And then the the third has to do with the ending, where I felt in the ending, and uh, I don't know if we want to get too much into that, uh, if we want to tell folks what the ending is or whatnot, or our takes on the ending. It almost felt like, in a lot of ways, he was a lot smarter than he let on, is what I'll say. That he he kind of knew he was being played or he knew that these things were happening and he wasn't as dumb as uh, he was made out to be or led to believe at least to the people who was around him and us. Yeah, should we talk about the end? I mean, it's this film came out in, what, 1990? So it's been 25 years? I mean, but to me, again, you know, going back to the beginning of the conversation, I don't know if this is necessarily as popular as it should be if we should give i guess if we can just give a little warning that we're going to talk spoilers here for a little bit Mm -hmm. but the end of the movie is such that you know i mean that's what blew my socks off the first time i saw it was to to be in this one position throughout so much of the film and then have it suddenly turn on its head really kind of blew me away because he's one of the things i think that happens in the you know, in the movie, or at least the way the movie plays the the ending, is that it 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 flips a lot of things that you see in other Thompson novels. Like so, like so, so in the Killer Inside Me in, in Pop Twelve Eighty, what you have is a kind of smart person who, for much of the book, pretends that he's a lot dumber than he is. And I think that the kid here is is a is a I, I don't know whether he's a he's a genuinely dumb person or whether he's somebody who is injured in the boxing ring or, you know, but he's clearly, you know, recently just escaped from um, a mental hospital, but he's, he's someone who's always trying to prove to people that he's not dumb, that he's smarter than, than he is. We, you know, we talked a little bit about that scene where, you know, at the bar where he's, where he's, he's, he's trying to talk like a businessman or, or, you know, it, it's very important to him that, you know that Uncle Bud and and Faye aren't hoodwinking him. You know, and that and that he's and that he's smart enough to know when they're hoodwinking him. Sometimes when they're when they're in fact not hoodwinking him, and you know, and and it's very likely that they're actually just being, you know, them they're they're confused, relatively transparent um, selves. In the novel, the ending is is even more, I think, devastating and, and subtle than it than it is in the in the movie because it's it, it's it's one of Thompson's best kind of double edged endings is that you sim- you simultaneously see the way you do in the movie the kid as as heroic you know he's sacrificing himself so that Faye will have a convincing story um, to um, to tell the police so that she won't have to go to jail. But you also see that moment in the novel as, as the culmination of all the childish and infantile and dead end things that, uh, you know, he's been doing for his, for his whole life. So it's, uh, it's an extraordinary, an extraordinary, like kind of ambiguous and deft um, ending to the, to the novel that I don't think the, the movie was interested in, in presenting doubly, but but I think goes very much for the the heroic aspect of it. When the man stops caring what happens, all the strain is lifted from him. Suspicion and worry and fear, all the things that 
twist his thinking out of focus are brushed aside and he can see people exactly as they are at last as I saw Faye then weak and frightened but basically as good as a person could be and hating herself for not being better suddenly the only thing that mattered was that she live it was the only way my having lived would make any sense it was why I had been made like I was to do something for her that she could not do for herself and then to protect her so that she could go on so that she would have the reason for living that I'd never had the thing that really got me is that there's a point in the film fairly early on I think it's uh, during that uh, that um, kind of I don't know, ping pong match or whatever at Faye's place where he starts bringing out, I wouldn't say $5 words, but at least a dollar, maybe even a dollar fifty type of words and expresses that he's not used to conversing with people that where he's been been at, he doesn't have a chance to practice his conversational skills very often. And I really appreciate that. We get that glimpse right there early on and every once in a while he'll kind of drop a little bit of a quote-unquote smart word and it is kind of that like hint that there's more going on for him than we're necessarily seeing. We're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with screenwriter Robert Redlin and the second is with director James Foley after these brief messages. One dark and stormy night in the mid-80s, Joe Bob Briggs, Harlan Ellison, and the ghost of El Santo pulled a train on Elvira while Siskel and Ebert sobbingly masturbated in the corner. From that union arose the greatest movie critic and luchador that ever lived. We're not going to talk about him. He's kind of a dick. Instead, we're going to talk about me, El Goro, the stuttering movie fan and host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Every week on Talk Without Rhythm, I discuss two to three movies tangentially tied together by a theme. I cover action. And the most complete fighter in the world. Sci-fi. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Horror. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And the continuing adventures of James Spader, sexual deviant. You're not worried that I'm going to fuck you, are you? I'm not interested in that, and I'm waste. Now pull up your skirt. So check me out at TWORpodcast.blogspot.com, drunkenzombie.com, or subscribe on iTunes. Talk Without Rhythm, the only podcast that will not attract the world. Adios. Christopher Media, the Weedsman Podcast. All right, man, it's time. It's time. Are we ready for the list? The list. So we all made this list earlier. We sat around. Maybe got a, maybe got a little too high. Well, you making know, this list. We, we did get too high because we only made half the list. <laughs> the Weedsman Podcast every Friday on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? 
I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. How did you get into writing? As a kid, I used to write. I used to try to do little plays. But I also enjoyed acting in theater. And uh, I wasn't exactly a brilliant person when it came to English and grammar and spelling. But uh, I made up stories. Uh, I loved fantasy. So I would create my own stories. And um, when I went to college, I took a class in creative writing at uh, John Carroll University. And I had a teacher who didn't believe that I wrote some of these things. And um, I realized that I was so angry at her that I was going to attempt to continue to write. Now, it sounds kind of corny, but sometimes maybe that's what it takes to be a writer, that you get upset with people and you're going to prove you can write. I don't know. But I I don't really consider myself um, uh, a writer-writer at this point because... The people I see write who do 10 books and write a lot, I guess they're writers. I I write, but not every day. I I love writing scripts, and I'm going to try and write a book at some point. But I I might say that I'm not as strong a writer as I would like to be. How did you get into screenwriting? Well, I wrote little um, vignettes, but I got into into screenwriting, at least out here, because... um, I wanted to do After Dark My Sweet, and um, I figured I didn't have the money to pay a writer, so I was just going to put it together myself and produce it and and try to make it happen. So I wrote the the first drafts of the uh, screenplay, and that's how I got started with that particular production. Prior to that, I had uh, written a, a small screenplay about narcs who um, go into schools and pose as uh, teenagers. And then I wrote some very uh, simple stories and some action screenplays. So just basically doing it and um, decided that I enjoyed it. So it's, 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 a, it's a area that I really do like doing is writing screenplays. I, I can use my imagination and kind of create characters and not be tied down by a lot of description, but enough to make me look good. <laughs> So why After Dark, My Sweet? How did that kind of come on your radar? I've always liked film noir. I've always liked uh, 
connection. I've always liked certain things. I, I grew up on movies. And I saw The Killer Inside Me by Warner Brothers. I think it was with Stacey Keach, actually. And um, I said, wow, I really like that film, but I really would like to redo it. Uh, it's missing something. And I was somewhat naive. So I thought I could possibly get the rights to do it. And I called, I researched it, and I found out that uh, Warner Brothers owned, owned the rights, uh, Lock, Stock, and Barrel. And so the agent gave me a choice of some other books. So I went down the list, and I said, After that, Monsieur, I like that title. So when I read the book, and I said, I really like this, and I want to try and get it made. And that's how I got involved with that. And I like Jim Thompson. He's a, a very strange character. He, I love the characters he writes. And um, uh, I just enjoyed it. So I decided I really want to try to get this on, on the screen. Now, have you done many adaptations other than this? No, that was actually it. I've not done any other adaptations. Uh, that was the only one I did. Um, after that, I wrote two other scripts that did get made. Um, they, they weren't the best, but uh, they did get made. Um, but this one, um, I, I really got lucky. Um, it, it, they liked it. They, the Avenue Pictures was interested in uh, wanting to do a uh, Jim Thompson film. Blaine Campbell, the agent who was helping me, and who also helped me obtain the rights to the, the book, introduced me to Avenue Pictures, and they worked with me, and they put up with me, and uh, after four or five drafts, it was something that they thought they could turn into a film. They brought on James Foley, who then reworked it also, and um, we got a film made. And then it was Rick Kidney, who was also brought on as a line producer, and uh, he was very wonderful. So I was very fortunate in a way to have some very strong people working to help me. So uh, I was very happy that film got made, and I thought it was good. And, and that's how it came about. So I've been writing ever since, and um, I don't want to do pretty much any adaptations. I like to do original stuff, but there are a few things I'd like to try and turn into films eventually. But, you know, it takes time, and you have to get lucky. It's always so tough when I speak to screenwriters because I know that you're working all the time, either on your own stuff or doing uh, rewrites on other things. But at the end of the day, when I look at your CV, it's like three completed things. And it's like, okay, well, I know that this guy's been doing more over the last 25 years <laughs> than just three things. And it's so tough sometimes. It's like, ah, oh, you know. I can't even imagine being in your business. Well, I've come close with a few projects, and uh, I still try to do some things, and I'm trying to work on some things now, but I don't put all my eggs in one basket either. I mean, I like writing, but I've also been in the educational world too, and uh, have enjoyed that quite a bit. I do have a, a project now, or two, that I'm working on and I'm, I'm very serious about, and we'll start pushing them more. But I'm not one of these guys who have done 30 screenplays, and uh, I'm not a household name. But I'm very proud of After Dark, my suite. I've always been very happy with that, and um, I came close a few times, and I just won't give up. So not only are you the screenwriter of After Dark, my suite, but I see that you're also a producer on it as well. I'm the one that got the book. I'm the one that put all the time into it. I was the creative producer for part of it. 
Um, and then once it went into production, Rick Kidney took over as a line producer and also worked uh, every day on the uh, on the set. I went down there uh, to the set in uh, Indio, and I spent time there. But for me, it was also a learning process. And uh, Kerry Brokaw had any pictures. I would see the dailies, put in my input. He was the executive producer. But it wasn't like I was the only brain that made this film happen. And I think a, a good producer understands that he gets something there, he gets it made, and at the same time, there are other people that work with him that really uh, make everyone look terrific. What was the experience like for you seeing your words kind of come to life on the screen? It was very exciting. I, I think what's really cool is you, you've written some words, and not all those words you might have Jim Thompson's, and you finally had a vision. And I mean, I'll be very honest with you. The movie was not the total vision of what I had, but that's what ended up being on the screen. Um, I had wanted to see a slightly different version, but I can't knock this. So, and I think a lot of writers would like to see what they write actually go to the screen and not have directors and other people interfere with it and trust that the writer knows what they're doing. Uh, sometimes directors have an ego, too, and want to build what they want. Um, I, I never wanted voiceover, for example, in After Dark Next Week. I wanted to be a straight, true movie without speaking. Uh, a lot of film noir does have voiceover, and I think sometimes voiceover slows the film and the imagination a bit and, and tries to make up for telling the story. But I did enjoy it very much. It, um, it was a, a very, very wonderful moment for me. And, um, you know, I also realized that it's few and far between, so... I never felt that I was going to spend the rest of my life trying to get another film made and starve to death either, okay? So I also believe that, you know, I love working with children. I've done that all my life also, and um, I've written stories about that. So I've been blessed to have two different careers, and I don't know if I could say a career in writing, but I think I've been pretty close to most people. I've gotten two films made, all independent, one really great, and two, they're there. What else can I say? Uh, and I, if one or two of these other things take place, I feel I've accomplished a lot. But I also write for myself. I don't just write for um, hoping to get something done. And uh, that's important, too. What was the reaction to the film like? Do you remember? Yeah. Just so neat. Ebert really liked it. Um, when they were together, they, they thought that that was one of the best films of the year. I think they gave it a number two best film. I remember Time Magazine saying that um, uh, it was a very good film. Everyone, for the most part, gave it uh, a good, um, as, uh, a, a very good review. Some people thought it was a little slow, but um, I didn't read a terrible review. I Variety liked it, Hollywood Reporter liked it. So across the board, it did okay. Uh, financially, I, I think it made its money back. Uh, it's funny, I, I still get a residual check once in a while. So um, I can't complain. It, it, everyone liked that film, and I'm very proud of it. It was the first film that I actually accomplished out here in Los Angeles, and uh, <clears throat> I got lucky, like I say. There were some other people involved, and uh, they had decided they wanted to try to take it to a studio, but at the end, I always feel that um, if you've got a deal in place and you can make it happen, then that's what you go after. And, and I must say that, you know, I, I had um, 
an option with Wendy Feynman at one point. And, and I have to thank Frank Campbell. He, he was a guy who really helped me get these things done. He was the agent, and uh, I don't know whatever became of Frank Campbell, but um, at this point, um, you know, I look back and say, you know, if it wasn't for him, I don't know if I would have ever gotten after dark even close to being made. So um, you just have to see where things go. I was wondering, could you tell me how did Bare Knuckles come about? Oh, my goodness. We want to talk about Bare Knuckles, do we? Well, if you um, want to talk about another one, that's fine. <laughs> well, I, I, Bare Knuckles is a very um, uh, sensitive part for me right now. Uh, I, Bare Knuckles came up, I'll tell you how it came up, uh, uh, how it happened. Um, I work with kids that do a lot of fighting. And um, I was amazed at how much they get into fights and things. And I spoke to a young lady once who said she loves getting hit and she loves fighting. And I thought, wow. And so I developed a woman character who would be a fighter. And I originally had her um, as a, uh, a hardworking person who wasn't making much money because times were tough. And uh, she eventually gets into the underground world of fighting. And I felt, you know, that at the time that I put this together, they weren't really showing women beating the hell out of each other. And not as much anyway. And I created a character who I felt would be very good as a very knuckle fighter for money. The original script that I had has her, it's a, quite different in a way, but it was basically a, um, an action fighting film. And uh, it's also um, a coming of, I guess, salvation for this woman. So that's how I got it together. That's about as far as I want to go with that script right now. So I am proud of my script, but... Um, and I, I always thought it was the best version. Is McKinsey's Island a little less sensitive? You can you can talk about anything. I'll just let you know what I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> can I ask you about that one? That seems like such an unusual cast. Oh my God, McKinsey's Island. Yes, that was interesting. That was Hulk Hogan, uh, Christina Dubin, and um, at the time, uh, uh, her financial partner. Um, they liked the idea I had. <clears throat> And I wrote the first draft uh, about the turtle that has a sea map. And I always say, well, you know, turtles live to be two, 200 years old. A map on a turtle could be very interesting and intriguing. Why don't we see what we go with this? And it's going to be a kid's film. And I had two kids that were going to, with their dad, decide to discover the treasure. And uh, then the producer and uh, the executive producer wanted to do a different way of going with it. And... Um, I spent uh, about six weeks off and on down in uh, St. Petersburg while it was being shot, and there were creative differences, and uh, I basically um, moved on. But uh, Christina Dubin's a good person, and um, uh, I still see her at times, but um, with the film, there were differences of opinion. And by the way, way, Hulk Hogan was a gentleman. He was a professional. All the people down there worked very hard. I, I brought the cinematographer on at that time, uh, an acquaintance of mine. And um, it was a good experience also for me. It, it taught me a lot about uh, shooting also. But I, I must say that um, I think that I've been able to, without going to film school, get some things done that have been very good. That's awesome. Do you want to talk at all about your current project, or is that still kind of under wraps? Well... I, my favorite script that I've written, and I 
would love to still get it made. I keep trying. I have a strip called The Other Side of Innocence, and it's about a teenager who's a serial killer, but it's not a slasher film, and it's a relationship film about high school kids, and it's a mystery, and uh, it, uh, it's not blood and gore. And people have read it. They like it. That's the one I'm going to try to turn into a book, but I'm still trying to get it made, and uh, maybe someone will be interested and want to read it, but um, I think it's a very strong script. And uh, we'll see. But the other project, no, I don't want to talk about it at this time because I'm writing with a partner and in fairness to that person and myself, uh, we want to make sure that we give it every chance we can. This has been great. Thank you so much for this. Well, I hope I haven't offended anybody. And uh, <laughs> trying to be very professional here. I always think that's important. But at the same time, I have to tell you, I, I have uh, no complaints. Uh, I still think Patrick Dark, I'm very proud of it. And I have to thank Jim. And I have to tell you, just very quickly, you know, the Jim Thompson family, I got to meet them. And uh, Miss, Mrs. Thompson, and I have a photograph that they signed for me with uh, Jim Thompson uh, at his car. And um, I thought that was really neat that they uh, gave me an opportunity about that. Uh, they were very, very nice. Yeah, so that was good. So anyway... Um, I think I covered kind of things there. If there's, if anyone calls and says, "Well, no, he missed that," he missed, believe him. What do I know? You know, it, it's been like 25 years. You know, I'm lucky I'm still talking. So what can I say? Okay. Thank you, thank you so much, sir. This has been great. Sure, you're welcome. Well, thanks for taking the time on a Saturday to talk to us about some uh, some of your work. Yeah, no problem. I'm just uh, I'm in Baltimore actually. I'm directing. I'm in pre-production and the season finale of House of Cards season three. Very nice. And um, I've been kind of um, joined at the hip with House of Cards for like the last uh, two and a half years. I did six episodes last season and three this season, and. Um, I think it'll be my last just because I'm getting a little bit worn out with, you know, it's really thrilling and exciting when you first walk on a, on into the Oval Office or into uh, the residence of the White House, which they built this year and stuff, and the sets are fantastic. But then after a while, you're sitting around on the couches in the Oval Office, um, kicking the furniture. <laughs> the, thrill, uh, the thrill is gone. But... I'm going to uh, pull it out for one last uh, season finale with a big cliffhanger, and um, we'll see what happens next year. Must be nice kind of uh, going back and working with Kevin Spacey again. Yeah, that was always good. I mean, when you have a prior thing with somebody, particularly at that time in Glengarry, he was the low man in the totem pole. Now, in this world, he's numero uno. Right. But um, I can say I remember him when, and so he can't... uh, he can't tyrannize me, tyrannize me with uh, his big wig um, position on the show. <laughs> <laughs> not that he tries to, but um, it's always nice to not have to start him, you know, because it's it's irrelevant to the character, and so it's um, always nice to push that out of the way. But I mean, every time I've ever made a movie with some star, I always 
try to um, hang out with them enough before we start so that the stardom disappears. Mm -hmm. And uh, it always fascinates me because somebody's only famous if there's an audience to reflect it. So if you're sitting in a room with somebody and and they're famous, it it goes away. And um, I think that's always necessary. If the character's not famous, then they're famous, nothing to do with it. Right. And so I always like to try to try to get rid of that. But no, Kevin's great anyway. I mean, he doesn't he's quite solicitous to all the directors and uh but that's been my discovery too, is that there has never been an actor I've worked with who didn't want to be directed on some level. I mean they all want something a little bit different, but they all want a reaction. They all want an an audience uh to respond to what they're doing. And uh Kevin's no different. Now, you've been directing for a little over 30 years now. Uh, don't remind me, man. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I would say point of pride <laughs> more than a sore, sore spot. <laughs> uh, no, it, uh, and it's the old story where if you just don't notice it and, and it just creeps up on you. And then I remember the first time, I forget which movie it was, a couple of movies ago, where the review in Variety said it was a positive review by veteran director James Foley. And I was like, what? <laughs> I still had the, my own thought that I was like fresh out of film school and a, you know, a new young thing on scene. And then they used the word veteran and kind of sobered me up, but that's okay. Uh, that it's be a veteran and a has been, I suppose. How did you get into the business? I, was classic film school brat. I uh, went undergraduate to um, study psychology, and I was going to be a shrink, actually. And uh, I went from wanting to be a psychologist to wanting to be an actual shrink, and so I took a semester off because I applied to um, medical school so I could become an actual psychiatrist. And uh, while I was waiting, I took a, for the hell of it, it was in the... uh, late 70s, took a class in filmmaking at NYU because it was kind of in the air as a cool thing to do, you know, film schools and um, all those guys who were graduating from there. So I just took a class with the hell of it, and I made a uh, two-minute film that was successful in its ambition, I like to say. And uh, it was just a little thing, a silent black-and-white thing of... uh, that I did in Washington Square Park because we had like six hours to make the film. So everybody would just go out of the classrooms at NYU over in Washington Square Park and film whatever they could. And I filmed a bunch of kids in a sandbox playing. And the camera was down at the level of one of the kids. And then suddenly these a man's legs came into the frame and then his hands came down in and picked the child up and took it away because it was a father who didn't want his kid being photographed. But when I cut it together, not only what the hell I was doing, but when it got to that point, it was all these picking up shots of kids playing. And then this one thing where this man takes the kid away, the whole, ooh, you know, like it was some sexually threatening thing by a, by a child predator. Mm. <laughs> but it was the first time I, when I think back on it, it was the first time I'd done something, expressed myself in some form other than speech, 
but that got a reaction from a group of people. Maybe there were 20 kids in the class. But they, in un- I remember they in unison made that sound, and it um, stimulated some feeling in me that I literally did not know I was capable of, like some kind of really a feeling of pleasure or a feeling of having been heard or something. And um, I had one of those epiphanal moments where I thought, yeah, I just want to have that feeling again. And I dumped the idea of becoming a shrink and I applied to uh, USC graduate school. And I went out there for three years and I was very lucky that within a year after graduating, I, uh, I found an agent through somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. I got my first movie, uh, Reckless, which was um, surprisingly produced by Scott Rudin, who wasn't Scott Rudin at the time, but became Scott Rudin. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, the rest is public record. Yeah, you, you did pretty good for yourself. Produced by Scott Rudin, written by Chris Columbus. I mean, huge cast. Aiden Quinn was so hot at the time. And Daryl yeah. Hannah, I mean, she was right. This was right around Splash, I think. Yeah, well, actually, Splash was right after. I remember um, Brian Grazer and Ron Howard coming to the editing room to look at uh, Daryl in Reckless and the cast in Splash. Um, uh, no, I was really lucky. I don't didn't realize I was lucky. I just thought it made sense. I went to school to make you know to direct movies, and I got out and I got a job directing movies. So it all made sense to me. But looking back, uh, particularly when I go down at USC or some other film school and talk to students, my rap always is forget about it. You know, <laughs> trying to scare away the marginal <laughs> people because uh, it's just an impossible uh, an impossible dream to direct a movie. But I didn't know that at the time, so I was um, blissfully ignorant and um, got going pretty easily. And then at close range, I remember that was really big when that came out, too. Yeah, no, that was, uh, again, some luck, because when I was casting Reckless, there were a bunch of young uh, guys, among them Sean Penn, Tom Cruise, and Emilio Estevez, and Rob Lowe, and they all read for the part in Reckless, um, although Sean Penn contends that he's the one that turned it down, that he... <laughs> it's still a point of uh, controversy between us. But um, he and I became uh, friends in any case, and he's the one who knew Elliot... Uh, not Elliot... Well, Elliot Lewitt was the producer, but Nick Kazan was the writer. And... Uh, he knew Nick Kazan and Nick had written the script to uh, close range. And Sean is the one who brought me onto that. So again, it was a bit of serendipity and that led to Sean, which led unfortunately or fortunately to uh, who's that girl. And, um, and then on and on, uh, it's just interesting to think back on, you know, how you sort of almost, almost, um, flip-flop into the situations having to do with who you're working with at the time and what influences you have and um, what opportunities come up. And so there's a kind of follow-the-dots kind of map that's easy to show. I remember the day because Sean had no no place to live. He had broken up with his girlfriend um, prior to Madonna. 
and he had no place to live, and he was living on my couch, and we were watching the nascent MTV, and um, there was, uh, Like a Virgin was on, and Sean mentioned that he knew a an AD, an assistant director, who was doing this chick's new video, Material Girl, and uh, down in Hollywood, and we could go check her out, which we did, and... Um, so I was there when uh, Sean met Madonna, and um, that became its own history, and I got uh, cool, and uh, got very seduced, and um, when, you know, here I had made these two kind of dramas, Reckless and the Close Range, and Warner Brothers wanted to make this silly comedy with Madonna, and um, they knew that I knew her, so somehow... I became this um, go-between in really landing Madonna to be in the movie. And I had no place directing it. I didn't know anything about directing comedy. But I don't regret it. It was all part of the master plan. And uh, I had a great time doing it. But then that was a big flop. And so uh, I had to sort of dig down back into my roots and... Uh, that's when After Dark came up and it was being made for, you know, four and a half million bucks. And, um, but I was already a fan of Jim Thompson's and, um, this guy named Carrie Brokaw, the producer, um, approached me and I was really hungry to reestablish myself after Who's That Girl. So I, I jumped on it at that, uh, time right when I got it, um, this movie, uh, The Beast, came out. Did I ever see The Beast? It was uh, directed by Kevin Reynolds. About It was Jason Patrick as a young Soviet tank commander in Afghanistan. Oh. Afghanistan? Oh, God, yeah. As you're saying it, it's like coming into focus. and I can kind of picture the video box cover. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I forget the other, the other actors in it, but um, it, it, the movie didn't make much of a splash, but I saw it in the theater and was really taken by Jason. And um, it was right when I was, you know, getting involved with uh, After Dark, and he just popped off the screen to me as Collie Collins. And, um, uh, but it's one of the things I'm uh, more proud of is that I just felt so strongly that he was the guy, but he'd only been in that movie and um, he wasn't a name of any kind. And as I'm sure you know, paradoxically, the smaller the movie, the more the demand there is for a recognizable name. But I just sort of put it on the line that it was him or nobody. And um, Carrie Brokaw, to his credit, stood behind me and we uh, cast him. Rachel Ward, I had known in real life from some years before, and um, she came to my mind too. So it was one of those, it was like after Who's That Girl when I was kind of led by the nose by external things of stardom and big movie and Warner Brothers and all that stuff that I was kind of determined that for better or for worse, I was going to do as what I wanted to do, not what somebody else wanted me to do. And uh, it kind of 
fuels me to do it my way. What about After Dark My Sweet appealed to you? Just the Jim Thompson connection? I saw it as a um, as a romance uh, first and foremost. I something about this damaged character who was people were you know attempting to exploit him and his shortcomings, but that he had this romantic streak that he really fell in love with this woman and wanted to make a human connection with somebody and to trust them and to be trusted. You know, my imaginary backstory for for him was that he was somebody who had never really connected with anybody in any kind of serious way. And this was the first time. So there was something romantically tragic about it that was for me, the main calling card. Um, the fact that it was noir and, uh, that it was Thompson and everything was kind of secondary to me. How was the script when you first got it? Cause it was, uh, Rod- Robert Redland's script. And then did you do a rewrite on it? Yep. Yes. Um, uh, Robert Redland had written an adaptation, but it, uh, veered, uh, to be honest, can't remember in what specific ways, but it veered kind of substantially from the book. And I thought the book was, a kind of blueprint, uh, a really, a really specific blueprint that more than anything, when I did my, uh, writing, it was transcribing, uh, from the book. I mean, I think a good 80% of the dialogue is directly lifted from the book and, um, uh, all of the action. I don't recall creating any original actions that are separate from the book. So I, my job is really to bring it back much closer to, uh, to what Thompson had written. And um, luckily, I got to share screen by credit. Kind of sounds like when John Huston adapted the Maltese Falcon. It was like, it's all there in the book. I just need to put it on screen. Yeah, yeah. No, that was definitely uh, the case. I mean, I remember just sitting there at home with the, uh, with the book and my ancient computer. And... Uh, <laughs> just banging and, you know, taking out whole, uh, whole passages of dialogue and stuff and just editing, really editing the book uh, down into a 120 page screenplay. Now, Jason Patrick, he ended up in, I think just about every single scene of the film. What was your working relationship like with him? It was good. (laughs) Um, it had its complications. Um, the thing that I was very married to, and excited about was that to maintain the first person point of view of the book. And, um, so by definition, he had to be in every scene. And, um, and I remember even there was a moment when Rachel Ward and Bruce Dern were kind of conspiring with each other that they wanted to do a certain thing inside their house prior to Jason entering the house. And I listened to it and I said, well, it's interesting, but it can't be in the movie because the movie is a very strict first person point of view of Collie Collins. And I remember both of them, I think to this day, don't know what I was talking about and don't understand why they couldn't have this little piece of business before Jason entered the room. And, um, but 
Jason uh, was, uh, and I've not been in contact with him in recent years, but um, a very um, driven, very self-flagellating kind of uh, actor who, no matter what he did, it sucked and it was no good and the whole thing's crap and why are we doing this? And that kind of went on a lot, but I knew that what he was doing was great and I was really happy so I could suffer it, so to speak. But he, um, was not the simplest guy to, uh, to wrangle, but in some way, um, he absorbed that character. And, uh, I think by, for my money, it's the best thing he's ever done. I think he did some other things that are very accomplished like narc and, um, some other stuff. But, um, I think he, it's a great example of somebody of some method surrendered to the character that, um, they became one. And, um, but he just never could, he never could, uh, until it was all over. And then he saw the movie and himself and everything great, <laughs> but making of it, he, uh, was quite self-flagellating. From what I know of Bruce Stern, it sounds like those guys couldn't be more opposite with their approach to acting. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but what was funny is that, uh, Jason knew Bruce Stern. I can't remember now why, uh, I think something about Jason's father, you know, Jason's father was the guy who wrote that championship season and was the priest in the exorcist. Like whose name I can't remember now, but it's not Patrick. What's his name? Um, that championship season written by what's up? The guy that played Father Karras. Yes, Father Karras. Okay. Father Karras and the Exorcist is Jason Patrick's father. A little known fact, but now I've got to Google it because I'm I'm, I'm already uh, on it here. <laughs> said that, Jason Miller. See who wins. There it is, Jason, Jason Miller. Miller. There you go, Jason Miller. That's his father. And you know, his grandfather is Jackie Gleason. And so he had some showbiz roots. And somehow Bruce Stern intersected with those roots. And so Jason was kind of the one who suggested Bruce in the first place. And I wasn't at all sold in the beginning until I met Bruce and hung with him for a while. And uh, now I think he was the perfect guy. But because they had that prior relationship, they actually worked together really well. And there was no um, clash of approaches or style or anything like that. How was it working with Rachel Ward? Well, um, great. Uh, we had um, had our own fling uh, years before when she first came to uh, Hollywood and was Rachel Ward of Shockey's Machine and Thornbirds and things like that. And then she, uh, on the Thornbird, she met Brian Brown, the Aussie actor, and uh, uh, went off with him to Australia. And somehow, years later, maybe in some kind of unconscious masochism, I um, 
really wanted her to be in this uh, in this film. Just because when I read the book, there was something about that character, Faye, that reminded me of Rachel. And she was kind of not even acting very much at the time. Uh, she was having kids and stuff in Australia. But she was still, uh, at the time, a bit of an easier sell to people financing. Uh, she was a bigger name than Jason was. And, um, but when I think back now about my own psychology of why I would cast this former girlfriend in the part where she was having this rather intense sexual relationship with the guy in the movie, I'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) But somehow I think it helped because it just, uh, I had plenty of fantasies to fuel my cinematic vision. What's funny that she was kind of like the go-to lady for neo-noir at the time with, well, Dead Men to Wear Plaid, which was a a comedy, but with Against All Odds, she was kind of doing the same thing. Oh, yeah. It's funny. I I never reflected on that. But you're right. Against All Odds was kind of the femme fatale. That's a very good point. How was the movie received when it came out? The movie was received... um, as one of the uh, best of my career, I remember uh, being at the Montreal Film Festival when I read the first review from David Anson of uh, Newsweek, who gave it um, quite the rave. And uh, I remember that because I remember standing waiting for an elevator, and I had just picked up a nice analog copy of Newsweek. And... Uh, I remember that it made the hair in the back of my neck stand up. And now, this is from a guy who's gotten some reviews for other movies that made the hair in the back of my neck fall off. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this was a really great review. My biggest supporter, interestingly enough, was Roger Ebert. And the original Siskel and Ebert review was both very positive. But Siskel... Uh, I'm sorry, Ebert, Roger Ebert, uh, wrote about it subsequently on at certain end of decades as one of the best films of the decade. But I remember, you, you guys remember Premier Magazine? Oh, yeah. That they used to have this thing, this chart at the end of the year for the best reviewed movies, um, sort of like a precursor to Rotten Tomatoes. I remember they had the best reviewed movies, and After Dark was number two. And all I can remember is being kind of a little bit pissed off that it was number two, not number one. Number one was Do the Right Thing. It was the same year. And, um, but now when I think back, I think back, man, I would take number two for <laughs> <laughs> any number of movies. But at the time, it kind of disappointed me. But no, it got, it got really good reviews. Um, unfortunately, it was distributed by a company that no longer exists, um, Avenue Entertainment which was famous for doing Drugstore Cowboy with Matt Dillon and Gus Van Zandt. And, um, but it was a very small distribution company with very shallow pockets. And it, was, it came out at a time in the 90s that was just prior to the Miramax indie revolution of releasing indie films. So it was released in this very odd pattern of about 250 theaters initially across the country. 
And it was released not as an indie art film, but as a thriller, a sexy thriller. And that's all the TV ads and everything were focused on that. And I think it was a giant mistake. I, I don't I don't blame any particular individuals. I mean, it was just thinking at the time released in as a very small scale wide release, and it didn't hold up very well in as in per screen average. You know, it was really off the charts in art houses in New York and L.A. and Chicago and hopefully Detroit, but um, it didn't make enough money to convince them to spend more in the second weekend. You know, they spent, I don't know, a couple of mil for that opening. But then I remember being in a meeting where they decided, you know, we really, they were deciding whether to spend another million, one million, it seems like such chump change these days, one million to buy TV ads in the second weekend. And they decided not to, it was too risky because the company was so small. So it certainly did not make much of a dent in the theatrical, but happily it came at a time when uh, there was um, home video and everything else, and it survived. Yeah, it definitely has. And I, I think the film has held up, and it, for me, it's even gotten better. Watching it again just recently, it just, I mean, those performances are killer, and it is just, it's so tight. Yeah, and I give that to Thompson. Um, as I said, because I thought I more transcribed the book than anything, um, they really, I think it's one of his most well-structured stories for a movie. Um, it just, you're right, I think every scene is kind of essential and um, indispensable. And it moves at its own pace. But for some reason... If I go back and I don't go back and purposely look at stuff, but when I come on TV or something like that, there are some movies I've made where I turn the channel as fast as possible. But <laughs> when After Dark comes on, I kind of get sucked in to watching it for a while. And um, I find it kind of satisfying last year, year and a half, something like that. And I was surprised at uh, a lot of aspects of it, including the cinematography was pleasing to me years later and the pace of it in its you know its own deliberate way was satisfying to me and i can't say that for every film i've made Thanks to Robert Redland and James Foley for taking the time to talk to us. That's the first part of our interview with James Foley. You'll hear the second part next week when we talk to him about Glengarry Glen Ross. For now, we're talking about After Dark, My Sweet, which is part of a spate of neo-noirs that happened in the late 80s and early 90s, and as I alluded to, uh, eventually got ramped up even more uh, post-Quentin uh, Tarantino. So, uh, gentlemen, how do you see this film fitting into sort of that uh, neo-noirs that you were saying in the late 80s and early 90s? I think when you say Jim Thompson adaptations to, I won't say most people, because that phrase isn't going to ring a whole lot of bells, but if you start talking about Jim Thompson and his books and everything, a lot of folks remember The Killer Inside Me, the versions of that, but I think most people are going to point back to The Grifters, which I find kind of funny that that was coming out the same year as After Dark, My Sweet, and I think that really helped kind of overshadow what was happening with After Dark, because The Grifters, 
that got great reviews. I remember Siskel and Ebert really talking that one up. I don't remember a whole lot of hype for After Dark. I don't either. I mean, I think it was a movie that um, that disappeared, um, as far as I can I can tell. He was part of the you know going Thompson revival in the late eighties and the in the early nineties. The, but the Grifters was a was a much more um, popular film. I'm trying to remember when that remake of The Getaway was. It was ninety four, I think ninety five. Yeah, yeah okay. I mean, the, yeah, it was later. I, yeah, I think maybe the reason why the Grifters got the attention was because of the cast. I mean, because you had Angelica Houston and Ned Benning and John Cusack. So those three together. That was a pretty good cast, and not nothing against James Foley, I mean, good director, but I think it was Stephen Frears, so if you want to talk about British art house director, I think that also may have been the same thing uh, when it came to why the Grifters maybe got a little more attention. I mean, as for me, to be honest, the only thing that, that I knew about Thompson, uh, besides the, the Grifters, and then also, you know, with this film, was that he had written some of the dialogue for the Stanley Kubrick film, The Killing my understanding and that that was about it so that was yeah so so i didn't i mean i don't even really know that much about him and and i don't read uh hard-boiled fiction on the level that uh, you guys do it was really strange that this was this strange period i mean i don't even know you know you can say that noir ended with i don't know touch of evil or whatever but it almost feels like as soon as the the noir period was quote unquote over that it was immediately kind of brought back i mean there have been films that have been called neo-noir for a long time but it really felt like there was kind of this uh revival at least one one wave of a revival at this particular period of time because it felt like you know rachel ward was in against all odds in 84 Mm -hmm. so she was kind of right there at one of these you know like she was also in dead men don't wear plaid which was an interesting one kind of taking the noir films and revitalizing them and and using parts of them in this carl reiner comedy but then you get up to like 89 and 90 and you're getting remakes of narrow margin and a kiss before dying. And you're getting, you know, we've talked about, um, Singapore sling, which was kind of a weird sequel remake of Laura. And so you just have all these films all kind of coming out right around the same time. And then new adaptations or, uh, you know, fresh adaptations of the grifters and after dark, my sweet. So it was just kind of this weird, time of all of these noir neo-noir films coming out in this spate and i can really see where after dark would kind of get lost amongst all of those one of the ways in which it's different i think from the from the grifters too is that the, the grifters is one of thompson's third person novels rather than a first person novel part of what that means is that it it actually has a kind of more outward plot as opposed to a more inward inward plot. I mean, so much of the, you know, the action of After Dark, My Sweet, you know, takes place inside, you know, Collie's head, and and I think a lot of the the energy of the film goes into finding, you know, filmic equivalences for for what, in the language of the of the novel, is this is this strange kind of first person narration that it's that's that's full of 
um, unreliability and strange effects that um, that when you come to the grifters, you know, it's, it's, it's all kind of laid out there for you. You know, I think one of the decisions that Foley thought a lot about was, was whether to do a voiceover or not. So that right away, the, the, with the voiceover, the film is located inside Collie's head. And I think it's, it's fascinating that at the very end of the movie, the voice, it shifts to Faye's voice. Um, and, and suddenly she owns the movie now, or she owns what, what's going to happen next. I'm trying to remember, in The Grifters, is it Angelica Houston that's the mom, or Annette Benning? It's Angelica Houston, and um, but just like in this movie, you know, just 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 as in the movie um, After Dark, My Sweets. I mean, I mean, what you're watching is 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 for all of those roles to get mixed up. You know, it's it, you know, Faye is 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 Collie's lover, but Faye is also you know the mother of both of both the kidnapped kid and the um, you know, and and Kid Collins, and so it's it's this very ambiguous family um, relationship that, you know, that, that, that Thompson returned to over and over again. Okay. So that was one of his themes was this kind of family type thing. Cause I remember when we talked about when um, we had Dwayne Straczynski on here a couple months ago and Rob and I, and he talked about kind of family dynamic that was happening, usually in this kind of criminal milieu, the, the criminal family, but with, Thompson, I was seeing, because I've only read a handful of his works, but it was feeling like there were kind of family relationships. And then, yeah, this kind of weird, like, incestuous tone that was going on with some of these as well. So I wasn't sure if that was just the books that I happened to pick up or if that was kind of one of his themes. It happens over and over again, but it's it's probably at its most explicit in the in the grifters, and there are, and there are echoes of it here. I mean, I think one of the interesting aspects i think of after dark my sweet is that it 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 takes a lot of things that thompson used in other novels and kind of puts them in a in a blender and and purees them you know so that if you have like a character like lou ford and the killer inside me you know who's who's always talking about being being split in half you know that happens in after dark my sweet but it but it actually happens on the first page of the you know, of the novel, or Lou Ford reads works of, you know, of, of morbid, morbid psychology and works of pathology. And, and on the, I think on the second page of After Dark, My Sweet, the, the kid basically quotes from his own diagnosis, you know, the, the uh, diagnosis that was given him at the, you know, at the last mental hospital that he stayed. And, the various kind of relationships that, that emerge in the novel. Cause I think one of the things that we haven't talked about, and I think that's very, I think poignant in both the novel and the, and the movie is, is, is the way that the, the kid identifies with the kidnapped boy. He sees himself in that neglected, you know, sick, dying child. There's also, I think a strange way in which, um, Faye and, and the kid are kind of mirror images of one another. They're both also, I think, you know, damaged people who have somehow found each other. And I think one of the issues of the novel, and it's an issue of, of a lot of Thompson novels in various ways is, is trust. None of the people involved in this plot can trust the other people in it. That said explicitly at, 
I think at one point, you know, where the, where the kid says, you know, to Uncle Bud, you know, I don't trust, I don't trust Faye, and she doesn't trust me, and both of us don't trust you, and it connects, I think, in 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 larger ways to can Cauley trust his own senses? Can Cauley trust what he's seeing? Can he can he trust um, what he's experiencing with? With Faye or with or with Uncle Bud, and and I think the that's where the sex scene or the lovemaking scene in both the, the novel and the movie um, is so extraordinary because it's it's the moment when that trust actually happens in a way that I don't see as ironized in any way. Like like you're not meant to um, dismiss that. It doesn't last. It's transitory. It's not. It's not permanent. But I. I don't think we're meant to make fun of it, though. The way that the the the, the sexual scenes in a lot of Thompson's novels are are so brutal, or so coarse, or so ironized, and in in ways that um, undercut them as human exchanges. One of the things that you know we've talked a lot about why we think maybe this movie didn't get as much notice as, as it should have or, or did. And, you know, I could be completely talking out my ass. It could have been a huge blockbuster hit, but I really don't remember it being that way. But I think one of the things that kind of threw people off a little bit for me, anyway, I was talking about that video box and then because it's the video box and the poster were very much Jason Patrick and Rachel Ward in this loving embrace. And it says after dark, my sweet, I mean, it almost looked like a, you know, a Skinamax softcore title. You know, you, you didn't get a whole lot from that. And it's kind of funny because casting us back, my lovely to murder my sweet was that we've got Dick Powell playing Philip Marlowe in that one. And if mm. Dick Powell's in a film that's called farewell, my lovely, everybody's going to think that it's this, you know, musical comedy kind of thing or a, yeah. a musical drama. So they change it to murder my sweet. And it's funny that after dark, my sweet, well, it echoes the title in quite a, quite a ways uh, in both farewell, my lovely and murder my sweet. That's right. I think that was definitely a, a disadvantage to the movie, though I can't necessarily think of a better title. And it was nice that it stuck with the title of the book, but still, it's it's. I don't want to say it's false advertising, but the I don't even think the phrase "After Dark, My Sweet" ever gets uttered in the book or the movie. So it's just kind of a strange title for this thing. It just hangs there, and often Thompson himself didn't um, title title his books. I don't know if this is one of the ones that was you know titled by the by the publisher or um, or not. I mean Thompson's you know working title of of a hell of a woman was for now Brown Cow, for instance. <laughs> um, which, which didn't, which needless to say, didn't survive. And then he also, and this is probably actually the likely title, is that at the same time that he created After Dark My Sweet, he created a kind of filmic treatment of it, and he called it the Concrete Pasture after a phrase that appears, uh, you know, in the novel. This this vision of a concrete pasture of just kind of nothingness that goes on and on and and on. But I, but I think you're right. I mean, the the title, the title does predict something else. The the one of the things it does predict, though, is that you're gonna you're gonna see a, a noir film, 
um, or a neo-noir film um, because there are just so many echoes there. But what I remember at the time was that there was, before the movie came out, a lot of buzz about Jason Patrick and the idea that this was the film that was going to make Jason Patrick into a superstar. And then, it, and then that didn't happen. It so should have happened though. I mean, the performance that it gives in this movie, I mean, that's what I yeah. always come back to is just how great he is in this. And like, I know, yeah, he's been great in other things. And, you know, I mean, I know one of Rob's favorites is the lost boys, but you know, there's, he gives good performances, but nothing like he gives in this one for me anyway. I mean, maybe what he was in rush. Am I remembering this correctly? Mm-hmm. So I know that he was gave a, a great performance in that. He still gives great performances. He was in The Losers a few years ago, and he was terrific in that. I mean, just it's yeah. just uh, amazing what he can do. But yeah, he just never seemed to get the the notice that he should have. He should have been the next Kiefer Sutherland rather than the next Jason Patrick. But what I remember at the time, it was almost like he was being built out of this movie to become the next Richard Gere almost, you know, you know, it was that kind of stardom that was, you know, predicted, you know, from, from this movie before it, it was released. Um, and it never had, you know, and it, it clearly didn't happen. One of the questions, uh, um, that I think you might ask of, of a lot of, um, Jim Thompson adaptations is that, Many of them are a little bit too reverential, and that I wonder if that was one of the things that might have affected this movie. Because you know, earlier in the conversation, you know, we were talking about you know the way that some of the anachronisms work in the movie. You could say that the title is in fact one of those anachronisms as well. You know, along with some of the the dialogue in the movie, and that. In retrospect, I think some of the things that, that I think we now like about and love about the movie 25 years later, I think at, at the time, you know, there wasn't that that tradition already so ingrained in us of, of these neo-noirs that a lot of which are doing the things that we're talking about about now, that it's not really clear where a lot, you know, what, what year a lot of these movies are set in, you know, the... You know, you're you're watching the movie and the cars are telling you one thing and the language is telling you another and there's a kind of hallucinatory quality to the whole to the whole thing. And I think that some of the qualities that in fact now make it exciting to us, I think might have been the same qualities that made it difficult for people to to take it in. Where does this fit as far as the the spectrum of Thompson books. Like, was this, um, like, cause I know there was one period of his career where he was just, had this tremendous output. And then there were some other like bright spots as he's going along here. Where does this fit into his career? Yeah. yeah, This is from that period. This is from 1955. It's, it's, it's coming near the, near the, the, the end in a way of that, you know, of that extraordinary, you know, period. But in terms of quality, I mean, I would, you know, I would rank it as kind of like second tier Thompson. A first tier Thompson is Savage Night and, and A Hell of a Woman and The Killer Inside Me and Top 12 Idy and The Getaway. This is kind of, you know, just, just under that. Because as I said, you know, it, it, 
it, it, it takes a lot of of ideas and tropes from from the other novels that that, that Thompson was writing in the, in that same period, and and sometimes inverts them, you know, and but then sometimes just kind of reproduces them. But it's it, it's also, I think, one of the 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 tenderest of of Thompson's novels. That there's something about the kid that, for all of his violence, retains in innocence that isn't really available to a lot of the other characters in in Thompson's novel, and you see that come out with his, you know, his his relationship with the with the kidnapped boy, and it comes out. You know, more ambiguously in the novel with the with the ending where you know he saves the you know he saves Faye. It's somewhere kind of in the middle of the you know of the spectrum. It's kind of funny, Rob St. Mary. Um, the person who turned me on to Jim Thompson was actually Keith Gordon when I was talking to him years and years ago about projects that he's wanted to do and hasn't been able to realize. He immediately jumped to an adaptation of Savage Night. He would love to do that. And I'm like, I've never, you know, at that point I hadn't read any Jim Thompson. I knew who he was or had heard of him, but I hadn't read any of his stuff. So I mm. immediately picked up Savage Night and, yeah, hell of a book. And uh, I would love to see what Keith Gordon could do with that material. I mean, that's just an amazing book. I mean, it, it's just as a piece of experimental writing. It's just one of the, you know, the, the extraordinary accomplishments of American fiction like that, you know, that first person ending where as the person is apparently being hacked to death and the chapters get shorter and the sentences get shorter and the structure of the book, you know, is mimicking the, the action. I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's, it, it, it's something that like, you know, it would take William Burroughs to, you know, might have been the only other writer that could have thought of something like that. The reason we asked Robert Polito to be on the show is because he is, as far as I know, the world's resident Jim Thompson expert, the author of Savage Art, a biography of Jim Thompson. How did you get involved with that project? What made you decide, I'm going to do the biography of Jim Thompson? Well, it's, you know, it's, it, it, it was a series of things that 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 kind of unfolded is that um i read um a review of some of the thompson reprints in the new republic of all places and uh, and uh, the author of the article was david thompson you know the film critic and um and i just fell in love with the quotations so i went out that day i went to i was living in boston then i went to you know, Boston's, you know, leading mystery bookstore. And I think I was able to find four of the five um, books that were then in print. And the first book that I read was A Hell of a Woman. And I was just astonished by it, you know, that, that, that a, a book with these, with these qualities, the, the, the plot of it is a, is a traveling salesman in what looks like the depression, but you gradually kind of realize is, roughly the year that it was written around 1950. And after the, the first murder in the book, the, the structure and the style of the book just cracks open and the, the narrator changes his name, but goes back over the, the same material that we've seen in a, in a kind of crazy Horatio Alger pulp style. And that, and that continues that structure for the rest of the novel until you get to the final 
two or three pages of where Thompson alternates lines of two stories, one in Roman and one in italic type. And this is a book that was, you know, marketed as a 25 cent paperback original by Lion Books in the early 1950s. And, and so gradually what kind of happened is that I just became excited about trying to figure out where in somebody's life and where in a culture could, could books like this come from, because there's certainly not, um, it, it's certainly not, not obvious that, um, you know, um, that, a you know, a book that was that idiosyncratic and experimental, um, you know, would end up being sold as a paperback original. Savage art for me became, uh, a kind of quest for where in somebody's life and where in American culture, books like A Hell of a Woman could come from. In retrospect, it was kind of surprisingly fast. I mean, I did the research and the writing in about five or six years, but it was preceded by another project, which, um, you know, I I had written an article for the Boston Phoenix about about Thompson. And through writing that article, I, I became acquainted with um, Thompson's literary agents in New York. And and I learned about a whole, you know, box of unpublished writing, a lot of it kind of unfinished, that they were sitting on. And that and that led me to also research short stories that he had that he had published, um, journalism that he had published, um, sometimes under his his own name, sometimes under you know, under pseudonyms and and through that those that research I you know, I met his widow Alberta, who was who was um, you know um, a very valuable um, you know kind of witness to his life. I met um, his two daughters, his son, and his and his two sisters, and so out of that the core became um, the possibility of talking to what amounted to I think over you know, 200, 250 people who, who knew him at various stages of his life. And, and it happened at almost exactly the right moment. Um, if I had started the book, you know, five or six years after it was published, most of the people who knew Thompson as, uh, as a child or a young man were, were, were dead. I mean, so when the book came out and, in in 1995, um, you know Thompson, who was born in 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 1906, you know there were still people in their you know in their 80s who who knew him, and and in fact I discovered a a cousin who was living in a rest home in in Nebraska, and and she proved an extraordinary source for his his childhood. She was he was a little bit older than. Then Thompson remembered everything. She was the the person in her family who had kept the you know the Bible with all the lineages, the family lineages in it. And at some point, I realized that a lot of the stories that she were she was telling me, Thompson had used in in various you know in various novels, not necessarily the crime novels, but. But in some cases, I mean, like, you know, the way that he uses the Billingsley family in, in After Dark, My Sweet. So I just started making lists of, um, you know, of 
events that seemed to me like, oh, potentially autobiographical, and I would run them by her. I'd say, oh, do you remember a story like this or a story like that? You know, and maybe 25% of the time she would, but it was, but it, but what it, what it gave me was a kind of entree into, into these novels that are often read just simply as, as genre novels. That, that there was something very personal and sometimes even kind of private going on in them. Like for instance, you know, the way that Thompson keeps recurring, you know, keeps returning to these sheriff figures. You know, his father was, of course a sheriff and I discovered in in doing in doing research in Oklahoma newspapers that his you know that his father had been kind of spectacularly cashiered from office for, you know, embezzling funds a few years after Thompson was born. And so no wonder why, you know, he would he would return in in a number of books to these, you know, dubious sheriff figures. I had no idea until I read your book about Thompson's early works when it came to working out in the oil derricks and this almost kind of like there will be blood type existence, yeah. you know, the, just amazing stuff. And then and being a hobo and the po- uh, the political stuff being what he was a wobbly, right? I mean, just yeah, he was, he was so a wobbly. Many. Later, oh. you know, when he's in the Writers Project, he was a member of the Communist Party in Oklahoma. That was one of the interesting surprises for me was that, like, you think of, like, strong communist parties in cities like New York or Chicago or San Francisco or, you know, in Minnesota, but, but not in Oklahoma City. But it's, it, it was very clear that, you know, that, the, that Thompson's, you know, Thompson's, Thompson's friends were, were, were very much part of the party. And, and it was a close link that I discovered between... Thompson and Woody Guthrie, and um, through um, that, that also kind of developed through the through friends that he made at the Writers Project to the point where Woody Guthrie was virtually the the agent for the first novel that Thompson published in New York in the in the in the 1940s, and it, it very much became this 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 book about about American about American history from the the point of view of this very curious figure, you know, who, who except for the period when he was um, director of the Federal Writers Project in Oklahoma, was never a public figure. But the book just kept opening up and opening up into larger areas. And of course, the last, you know, third of the book is, is very much about, you know, Hollywood and the and the you know the the movies starting with um, you know his relationship with Stanley Cooper, which was not as smooth as I would have thought that it had been. It really there was a lot of uh, interesting kind of twists and turns going on with that stuff. There was a lot of drama. I mean, so that you know Thompson got an additional dialogue credit for the killing, but the killing is based on a novel by Lionel White and. The most original parts of the screenplay are, in fact, the additional dialogue. So it's a it's a kind of backhanded credit that, while it's accurate, doesn't you know represent the you know Thompson's contribution accurately. And he he wrote some of the early scripts of um, Pads of Glory, but um, and 
and some of what he wrote is, is used in the movie, but um, he was only one of a group of writers for, for that. And he did other projects for Kubrick, you know, some of which were lost and some of which were recently found. I haven't read it, but there's a, a, a treatment of a potential film that he did for Kubrick that was circulating a couple of years ago called Lunatic at Large. Yeah, that sounded fascinating. I was like, oh my God, I, what I would give to read that, but I'm sure that you already had that same pain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just uh, such a storied life. I mean, just so many different phases to it. I mean, you know, like you say at one point, um, you know, had Thompson never written another word, he would be known for just this particular period in his life. And that's fairly early on in his career. And then after that, he just, you know, keeps on going and keeps doing so much more stuff. And then had those kind of strange fallow periods where he just didn't seem to be able to get anything going. Yeah. I mean, the, the period that you're talking about is, is, is the 1950s when, in the early 19, the early to the middle 1950s, when basically like he he, he produced like at least a dozen of his you know of, of his greatest books over you know basically a three year period. And I think as I say in the book is that if he had died like the month before that period started, he would have just been known as I think this kind of minor you know working class leftist novelist. Um, you know, of the of 30s and 40s. And if he had died at the end of that period, um, you know, the, the only really important books that we wouldn't have by him probably would be the, you know, Pop 1280 and the, and the Grifters, maybe The Getaway. Um, but all the great first-person novels, you know, come from that period, or most of them, anyway. How do you feel that After Dark kind of fits into, because you talked about like him recycling certain bits and everything. How, how do you think that, that After Dark, My Sweet, the movie, kind of fits into the filmic uh, adaptations, which we're still getting, of course. There's probably going to be more filmic adaptations. I don't know if they're shooting any right now or anything, but we've had several notable ones over the years how do you think this kind of fits into that? Well, you know, I personally think that they're very hard books to film, you know, and and I think the first-person novels are particularly difficult to to film because they're they're often filmed as if the important part of the book is the plot, and the plots are often the most throwaway aspect of of a Thompson novel, and and what needs to be captured, if possible, is the is the voice of the person telling you the the story. So so that I think both of the adaptations, for instance, of the killer inside me, just focus on the on the on the plot and the and the violence of the story and never sort of go after what I think what, what makes the book so interesting, yeah, which is the, which is those moments when the narrator of, of the novel, Lou Ford, is is doing the same things to the reader that he's doing to his his victims and in the book and Thompson's best novels are these kind of trap doors that the reader falls through and um, so for instance like even even something like the getaway um, you know the getaway is always filmed as if it's just a caper movie but the last you know the last third of this book of that book is 
is this weird descent into, you know, a kind of crime novel hell. And nobody's tried to to film that. I mean, the closest scene is in the the the, the Peck and Paw getaway, where the you know the characters end up in a garbage truck. You know, but but you know that's that's an allusion to the kinds of activities that go on in the last fifty pages of the of the novel. I mean, I I think it would really take a director like you know I think. David Cronenberg, in a way, to do justice to the kind, the, the different kinds of energies that are going on in the in the Beth Thompson novels, and and my favorite is probably Coup de Torchon because it's in a lot of ways it's the freest and it's the least um, it's the least you know linearly reverential um, you know it, it moves the the setting from from Texas to you know, to Africa. Um, but it it turns out to be in in a lot of ways the most faithful to the spirit of the of the original pop twelve eighty there's something about um Africa and thompson was wasn't he hired to write a book that or hired to write a screenplay that was supposed to be set in africa am i re- remembering your well book yeah right? i mean well he, he i i well he was he was hired to to do the screenplay for for Pop Twelve Eighty, and I think he he opened it, um, though it was never used. With um, it's a group of people just sitting around eating dirt. Such a strange cat, man. <laughs> yeah. No, I know it's. It, I mean, that's that's kind of what you know what what I think makes them so difficult to to film in a way. And I think fully, you know, you know, with. Uh, with it and after dark, my sweet, but, but even, you know, but, but it was a little bit at the expense of the, the doubleness and the, you know, and the, and the ambiguity. Though I think you, you see a lot of that in the, you know, in the, the confusion and complications of the relationship with Faye, for instance. Well, speaking of Foley, let's go ahead, take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Let me have your attention for a moment. Put that coffee down. Let's talk about something important. Because we're adding a little something to this month's sales contest. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. You want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. Nobody should stand up and strike back. Somebody yeah. should do something to them. Alex is on earth. Yes. What can you do? I gotta tell you, I'm ready to do the Dutch. I know what I'll do. I'll go out and rob everybody blind and go to Argentina. You think you're a thief? We're just talking. We are? Yeah, we're just speaking about it. Like, speaking about it is an idea. We're not actually talking about it. No. It's a robbery. It's a robbery? No. And what is it we're so afraid of? All you need a little boost. Tonight is the thing. So be it. What up? What happened? Uh, we had a slight burglary. Criminals come and they, they take, they steal the phones. They stole the phones, they stole the... Uh. You robbed the office. Oh, sure, I robbed the office. Oh, sure. You did that? Will you get out of here? How can you talk to me that way? Are you talking to me? Well, I talk to the police. I get nervous. You know who doesn't? Oh, uh, thieves. What's your name? Al Pacino, Jack Lemon, Alec Baldwin, Ed Harris, Alan Arkin, from the Pulitzer Prize winner, Glengarry Glen Ross. This is how we keep score, Bubby. 
That's right, we're back next week talking about Glengarry Glen Ross, and you're going to need brass balls to listen to it. So before we go, we want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Robert Polito. And uh, Robert, what have you been up to lately? Well, I mean, I've been in Chicago for the past two years serving as president of the Poetry Foundation, and I'm going to return to the, you know, to New York City and the and the new school and the in the fall. And my hope is to co- sort of complete two books, one of which I've been working on for quite some time, which is called Detours: Seven Noir Lives, and it's a kind of composite biography of 35 moments across the lives of of seven noir figures, three filmmakers, Ida Lupino, Sam Fuller, and Edgar Ulmer, three writers, David Goodis, um, Clarence Cooper from Detroit, and Kenneth Searing, and Luigi is the seventh figure. And then I'm also, I want to write over the next next year and a half or so, um, a book about Bob Dylan, but it's, but it's about Dylan and since 1990. You know, it's about Self reinvention in middle age, and 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 how he figured out a way to write a different kind of song, and and do lots of touring, and write a memoir, and do a radio program, and make a movie, and things like that. So, you know, it's kind of extraordinary second act that he's had since um, you know nineteen ninety. I'm very excited for both projects. I'm especially excited to hear about Kenneth Fearing because I've read a lot of his work, but there's not a whole lot, at least what I've found, of bi- biographical information no. on him. Yeah, there's not a lot out there. There's not a lot out there. Um, do people in Detroit talk about Clarence Cooper ever? I feel you really know? bad, but I can't say that I've ever heard the name. What was he known for? Well, I mean, like he, he wrote novels like the the scene and the farm and um, um, the syndicate um, and you know um, he spent probably half of his life in in prison you know died um, you know under horrible circumstances in in New York but he's a terrific writer uh, a terrific writer all right I'm gonna have to look him up. Well, thanks again, Robert, and thanks for everybody for listening. If you want to return the favor, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us some stars. We've only got 144 reviews on iTunes, and well, that's just pretty gross. It takes five minutes, but it means the world to us and our quest to take over the world.
near dawn, I wake up to find her gone. And a note says only after dark. Skeen's been cooking for months, and if you leave, it'll go right on cooking till it boils away. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.